This is Soccer City, the World Cup. It's always going to provide surprises, and there have been several involving some of the pre-tournament favorites in Russia. Switzerland, they tied five-time champions Brazil. In their very first World Cup, Iceland tied Lionel Messi in Argentina. And Mexico recorded the upset of the tournament thus far when they knocked off the defending World Cup titleist Germany 1-0. In a moment, we'll get reaction from Little Mexico. Plus, I made a friend at an Upper East Side pub filled with England supporters for their Monday match with Tunisia. And I'll chat with a young Brazilian fan in Jackson Heights. Also, Ronald Matarita. He had fulfilled his dream of representing Costa Rica in the World Cup in Russia, joining New York City FC teammate Rodney Wallace. Matarita's journey, though, it came to a disappointing end before it even started. And Ken Bensinger, author of Red Card, it's a book that reads like a crime novel, although the contents are very real. The U.S. Department of Justice has led the way in stifling corruption within FIFA. And a part of that story, the awarding of the 2018 World Cup to Russia. The author will be here and join us on Soccer City. The 2026 World Cup went to the United Bidders last week, Canada, Mexico, and the United States. Former U.S. Men's National Team Captain and current NYCFC Sporting Director Claudio Reyna, he'll give his thoughts on that, and his new coach for the Boys of Blues, Dominic Torrent. Well, on Monday, I sat down next to Adam Barrams at Jones Wood Foundry, an official England supporters club on 76th Street, England's first match in the 2018 World Cup versus Tunisia. That was on Monday. Adam is a native of Hampshire, about uh, 30 miles north of Portsmouth, and he admitted to me that he is a member of the England Pessimistic Club. Oh, God, yes. Every, for four years, you have expectations, you always qualify well, and then... We are horrible in the tournaments. I remember very well the last World Cup. We were, I think, eliminated within a week when we lost to uh, Italy and then Uruguay in the first two games. It's tragic. (laughs) So what are your expectations this year? Well, as always, they're probably higher than they should be. But it looks good. He's got a young team. Southgate seems to have instilled some calm without being over-enthusiastic. So we'll see. Well, England got off to a good start, and there was an eruption at the 11-minute mark in British clubs across the globe. Harry Kane scored. So England is up one to nothing, and it could have been three or four before the half. But as it goes for the three Lions, Tunisia managed to make it one-one at the half, which left Adam less than optimistic. Just typical of being an England supporter, we've scored. We've probably had ten to twelve shots, probably half of those on goal. They've had one chance, which was a penalty, and we're playing good football. I just hope we carry on playing good football and we will win. But you can see them getting nervous. They get under pressure and we make a lot of mistakes. Uh, Deja vu all over again, as they say, I think. Uh, The England threats on goal then were minimal in the second half. But glory again to Harry Kane. So Kane with a brace and a 2-1 victory for England and a relieved supporter to my left at the bar. We made hard work of it as always, but better than other times, we actually came out with a win. So let's hope it's a good omen for the rest of the tournament. So are you encouraged? Well, we won, so I'm encouraged. (laughs) Adam Barrams was in New York City to celebrate his wife's birthday, and then he got to celebrate a good start for England. 
East Harlem has been called Spanish Harlem or El Barrio since the 1940s when immigrants from Puerto Rico settled in on that neighborhood. In the 1990s, an influx of Mexican immigrants began moving into the area, now known as Manhattan's Little Mexico, where I spent some time on Monday searching for local reaction to El Tree's upset over the defending World Cup champions Germany. Euromex Soccer, it's a popular store on 116th Street, where I met Harry Flores, whose parents own the store. And then during the game, Harry was describing when Herving Lozano became a national hero, scoring with 10 minutes remaining in the first half, and a customer called. But at that moment, Chucky Lozano cuts back and scores a goal. And I had the client on the line, and I yell out with my whole heart, like, go, go. And he was asking me for a jersey, and I couldn't uh, remember what he was asking for because everyone was screaming in the store. I couldn't remember, so I just told him that we didn't have it. <laughs> Maybe he should call back another day. And after the match, it was a celebration in the neighborhood, uh, among other things, for Harry. People are looking for jerseys. People are coming in. People are demanding jerseys. By then, we've sold out most of the jerseys. A lot of angry customers, but we have other things that they can buy, like accessories and like sombreros and hats and all the things that they can like support their team with. There were lots of like trumpets and like people yelling out Mexico, like people driving by just honking. It was a good feeling. After all, Mexico nor anyone else out of the CONCACAF region had ever beaten the Germans on the World Cup stage. And as for now, a coach that has often been maligned, Juan Carlos Osorio, is in the uh, good favors of the Mexican people. Because lots of people don't, um, don't really trust the tactics the coach makes most of the time because he makes lots of um, changes, changes. Yeah. and a lot of fans don't really like that and they were very doubtful of him but um, today he proved that he was a, a great coach and he led Mexico to victory. So you think Juan Carlos Osorio will maybe escape some of the uh, criticism now? Yeah I think so. I think you can see it mostly in uh, social media. It's a lot of funny things that people are posting like they want him for uh, president now. <laughs> It's just pretty funny. Things turn quickly. If you don't play well in the next game, I yeah. suppose it'll go back the other way, right? Yeah, of course. That's how it goes. And thanks to Harry Flores, Mexico will meet Korea Republic on Saturday. And I don't know if you got a chance to see Janet Poaba's tweet. Uh, if you didn't check it out, it's got over 13 million views right now. Janet said, quote, in her tweet, I'm 100% certain that my grandma was the reason Mexico won. And there was an accompanying video of her grandma blessing each player on a huge screen in their house during the National Anthem. Really a wonderful moment. And how about this? The Lozano goal that decided the Mexico-Germany match caused such a celebration in Mexico City that it registered on the seismic detectors. Officials called it an artificial earthquake that was possibly triggered due to massive jumps. That's impressive. On to Jackson Heights, Queens, Herbert Viana de Sosa. He works at Aroma Brazil restaurant. On Sunday, his team got off to a disappointing start, Brazil uh, tying Switzerland 1-1. Herbert saying that his country is still recovering from that 7-1 drubbing to Germany in the 2014 World Cup semis in Rio de Janeiro. He was there. It was like a shame for us, actually. But now I feel like 
I feel that we are stronger and uh, now we are praying for now we have to win you know now we have to to get it because it was like a shame for us in the past but now it don't have to be a shame anymore and his favorite player for Brazil it's not who you might think everyone say oh I love Neymar but I think Thiago Silva is more like the person we have like a head you know they think more they are more adult they're more mature in that so he can be like the head of the team. Silva is the uh, former captain of the team. Marcelo, he wore the captain's armband against the Swiss. And it'll be Costa Rica next for Brazil on Friday. The Ticos, they got off to a disappointing start, a one to nothing defeat to Serbia. New York City FC winger Ronald Matarita was selected to be part of that Costa Rica side, but his dream came to a heartbreaking end when a recurring injury forced him out of the squad in training the week leading up to the first game. New York City FC winger Jonathan Lewis was distraught for his teammate. Uh, it's definitely it's sad. I mean, of course, like he's been working hard, you know, uh, coming in, doing extras. He comes in in the morning with me and like does extras on the off days. And it's just, it's just obviously it's heartbreaking to see one of our players who's been working so hard to be in the World Cup, like lose it like a dream now because of an injury. So but he'll be back there next time. And he has to just stay mentally tough. So again, he has to just keep working hard and he'll be there again. He'll get his chance again. New York City FC goalkeeper Sean Johnson has spent a lot of time training and uh, during matches with Matarita, who plays in front of him at the back. Yeah, um, you know, it's, it's a really tough one, obviously. Um, feel for Mata, uh, great guy, great opportunity for him. Um, and uh, hopefully it's, uh, it's not severe and hopefully it's not one that keeps him out um, for a very long time. Well, it's a grade one hamstring strain, a minimum two-week injury that ended Matarita's first trip to the World Cup. His city teammate Rodney Wallace also selected and is there but did not play in the opening match. When Wallace and Matarita return to New York City full-time, they'll be introduced to a, a new head coach, Domenic Torrent, who will replace Patrick Vieira. Torrent is a longtime assistant with Pep Guardiola, including the past two seasons at sister club Manchester City. One of the reasons NYCFC sporting director Claudio Reyna feels it will be a smooth transition. It's as seamless as it can be because he's within the you know the network of our clubs and we 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 know him and uh, so he knows us and so you know feel really comfortable that it's someone within within the group moving to New York and style of play, training sessions will be similar. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of consistency and. Um, in the approach, I don't think there's going to be anything dramatically different. But of course, little by little, Dome will add his 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 influence into the team, and things will be different. It's always different with with every coach. Toronto is a uh, native Catalan with 24 trophies earned as an assistant to Guardiola at Barcelona, Bayern Munich, and Manchester City. A positive profile, now just waiting to receive his work visa. As of Tuesday, Torrent had yet to arrive with a, the match against Toronto FC coming up on Sunday. Reyna, he also chimed in on the news from a week ago. The United States, along with Canada and Mexico, awarded the 2026 World Cup. Reyna warning there is a 2022 World Cup first. Again, it doesn't change whether we got it or not that we have to get to work and change quite a bit and improve because the standard isn't good enough. So I hope we don't forget that Qatar's also a World Cup before 2026 that we need to qualify for. So everybody seems to forget that, you know, 
that there's a World Cup before without qualifying for Qatar. You know, it's in uh, 2026 would be more difficult. So I think it's great, obviously, for the sport and all those things that everybody's talking about. But as far as on the field and development of of our national team, you know, we need to get better quicker uh, and 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 make sure that we're focused on Qatar, which we are. Everybody wants to get back there and especially when the game starts and you don't see us playing, it's it really hits home. The former captain of the U.S. men's national team, Claudio Reyna. On May 27, 2015, multiple senior FIFA officials, FIFA the world governing body of soccer, were arrested on corruption charges in Zurich, Switzerland, the home city of FIFA. But it was the U.S. Department of Justice that led the investigation, which led to the resignation of its president, Sepp Blatter, followed by a six-year ban from the sport. And it prompted a Swiss criminal investigation into the awarding of this year's World Cup to Russia. To date, more than two dozen people have been convicted in the probe. Well, there's a new book out, Red Card, How the U.S. Blew the Whistle on the World's Biggest Sports Scandal. It tells this story. And the author, Ken Bensinger, is with us here on Soccer City. Welcome, Ken. Thanks so much for having me, Glenn. And I want to complete your bio a little bit here. You're an investigative reporter for BuzzFeed, formerly with the L.A. Times, and the Wall Street Journal. This book, it, it's written like a, a crime novel. I mean, people that like real crime, or what they call it, true crime, uh, are, are going to enjoy this. It is real, correct? It's all true. It's, it's all true, but it, is, it has, does have the feeling to read as if it were a, a, a fictional piece of, of police fiction or something. It's, it's, I tried really hard to make it read like a thriller, to make it suspenseful and exciting, because the truth is the story was suspenseful and exciting, and anything that tried to slow it down or, or make it boring just didn't, wasn't what I wanted to do. You know, and sometimes you look back at this FIFA scandal, you know, it's got that hashtag, FIFA scandal, and some of the stories are uh, almost too remarkable to be true, like they are made up in a novel. Yeah, that's right. So um, so it's funny, you know, in, in Latin America, they call it FIFA gate. That's how big of a deal it is, as if it, it's their version of Watergate. Um, but there's these scenes, there's just so many of them. There's there's this scene in Trinidad in 2011 when uh, brown uh, manila envelopes stuffed with $40,000 in cash were being handed out to FIFA representatives. Um, there's the scene where um, an IRS agent, an FBI agent, um, got uh, an American to, um, who had been stealing millions from the game and not paying taxes to flip and join the investigation um, on a, in a building in Manhattan um, just at the same night that the Rockefeller uh, Center Christmas tree was was lit up a few blocks away. Um, there's the there's the scene of, of that same figure going to the to the Kremlin to visit, excuse me, to the Russian White House to sit down with Vladimir Putin, who stood up and gave him a high five when he said he'd support Russia's bid for the World Cup. Um, another f- favorite scene for me is... Um, the way that they paid bribes in South America, um, where they would sort of meet in abandoned gas stations in the middle of nowhere with a single light bulb hanging on a string and negotiate multi-million dollar bribes. And then, of course, at the end, this whole thing was a big trial. And one of my one of the craziest scenes in the whole trial, there's two things that happened. One um, was that a fellow went on the stand, a witness uh, who was cooperating with the government, and they asked him if he'd paid any bribes to public officials in Argentina, where he's from. And he said yes, and they asked him to name the people, and he did. And then uh, when the press got a hold of that, within three hours of that, the press ran out of the courtroom to, to tell their tell, uh, agencies in South America, and within three hours, one of those two men jumped in front of a train and killed himself in Buenos Aires. Um, and the next day, one of the defend- defendants in the case 
um, almost broke up the trial because he was caught making throat-slitting gestures at that same witness. I, this is a Netflix miniseries. It's it's truly uh, amazing. Now, the, the, the person I, I would imagine you're referring to in that New York City tower was Chuck Blazer. That's right. I mean, and so I, I've got something here. Your book is 302 pages, not including the acknowledgments and, and a few other things at the end, which are also important. Chuck Blazer's name, I don't know if you knew this, is on 71 of those pages. <laughs> so I did, I did not know that. So what did, he played a, a pretty large role in, in your story, but tell us about Chuck Blazer. We don't want to assume uh, that folks in the listening audience know exactly who Blazer is. Yeah, well, Blazer is the guy who makes this a, a quintessentially American story. Um, Blazer is also sort of the the ultimate suburban soccer dad, um, both gone good and gone bad. Uh, good in the sense that he went from Westchester County soccer in the 1970s all the way to the absolute highest, loftiest heights of international soccer at FIFA. Um, he became the highest-ranking American soccer official ever, essentially, um, one of the uh, 24 men on the FIFA executive committee, which was uh, the committee that controlled sort of everything that soccer did in the world on the largest scale, including the, the, where the World Cup would be held and how it was run and that sort of thing. So he was enormously influential in, in the international soccer scene. He was also influential in soccer in North and Central America and the Caribbean, where he was the number two most powerful official. Um, and all the time uh, that he was running soccer and many things to the benefit of soccer, including playing a big hand in creating the Women's World Cup and the U.S. Women's National Team and getting MLS its first um, significant TV deal, which was totally dependent on what Chuck Blazer did when he intervened and, and got the rights to ESPN and Univision um, rather than um, NBC um, and got a lot of money for the league. Um, all that good stuff he did was was balanced against the fact this is a guy that he was routinely stealing from the game year after year after year. Um, and uh, to the tune of more than 20 or $30 million he had stolen. Um, Not necessarily for the good of the game either. It wasn't like he was Robin Hood, correct? No, no, he was lining his own pockets. This was not, uh, this was not him giving it out to other people. Um, and at the same time, he's also an incredibly colorful figure, right? Because this is, a, this is not your ordinary-looking guy. You cannot miss him. You really couldn't. He's, um, he's about six foot two tall, maybe about 450 pounds, um, with a giant bushy beard and a, and a huge mop of curly hair um, and this big sort of um, jolly look to him and a big jolly laugh. If you look on the Internet and you Google his name, you'll find pictures of him from different occasions where he dressed up in costume as Star Wars characters or as a there's one of him addressed as a pirate with a uh, parrot on his sh perched on his shoulder and a patch over his eye. Um, he really enjoyed that kind of stuff with, by all accounts, the big life of the party. Um, and so just a, just a gigantically unusually larger-than-life figure and just so happened to end up being an incredibly important part of this criminal case when they got him on tax evasion. Eccentric would be a name. I mean, every, I think most have heard the story of that he had an apartment for his cat or cats. Uh, but he became an informant and he recorded conversations. What was the technique he used? So um, uh, it's not a lot. It's not these days. These those has changed a bit from the days of American Hustle, where you had sort of you know taping some giant recorder to some guy's chest, and then he's terrified that they're going to find it on him, and then that awful scene where they rip out, rip off the guy's poor, poor guy's chest hair, pulling the thing off. Um, uh, these days with technology, recorders can be tiny, tiny, tiny. And so what they'll do is they'll just put it in your, in your, that's a pin in your lapel. They'll put it inside of a, of a dummy water bottle you carry with you, carry with you or inside of a keychain. All of those techniques were used by Blazer or used by the FBI, which handled Blazer and they would take him to places where they want him to wear a wire and they'd, 
they'd give him at least two recorders at a time. Um, one thing I learned is that they always use at least two devices because they want to have a fail safe. Um, and uh, they usually use ones that don't have transmitters, so they can't, unlike in the movies where they're sitting there listening live as it happens, um, in this case, they just have to wait for the, for the person, the cooperator, to come back and hand them the, the recorders, and they plug it in their laptops and see what they got. This is essentially uh, about the time you got involved in this investigative report. This is when you kind of started digging in when uh, Blazer was discovered. I, the Daily News, I remember, uh, as I recall, they broke the story. The, the headline was Rotten, The Secret Life of Soccer's Mr. Big. That's right. So um, I actually wrote a story about, ooh, I would say f- four or five months before the Daily News um, about Chuck Blazer. It was a very large profile of Chuck Blazer. It got deep into a lot of his corruption and his long history of corruption. I mean, I had heard rumors that he might be cooperating with government, but I couldn't nail it down. And so if you read my article, you'll see that I don't have that fact. I have his whole life story. I have a lot of info about him, but I didn't know he was cooperating with the authorities. And so my hat uh, tips off um, very much so to the reporters of the Daily News who broke that story. Um, They wrote a book as well um, on the topic, um, but they got theirs out a a lot quicker um, than mine, and uh, I much respect to them for getting that scoop. Um, what I tried to do is springboard off, off the reporting I'd already done, and their reporting and other stuff to to really capture the whole narrative of the entire investigation and to learn a lot of stuff that wasn't public about the case. What the, then is unique about your publication, your book, which is called Red Card, How the U.S. Blew the Whistle on the World's Biggest Sports Scandal? Is there is there something that uh, will stimulate me to go out and purchase this thing? I mean, there's, there uh, are multiple characters that are in the book that just simply haven't been talked about in this case that are really critical to it. You know, Blazer has been talked about, although I think I do a, a good job of, of capturing his essence and what, what his involvement was. Um, but the uh, law enforcement people behind the case have, have almost completely remained in the shadows. When, the, when these scandals broke... It was Loretta Lynch, um, then the attorney general, who got all the attention, in part because she was attorney general, but also because her previous job had been U.S. attorney for the Eastern District in New York in Brooklyn, which is where this case um, was nurtured. And so she's very much associated with the case. But the truth of the matter is that she is way higher, way up the food chain from the guys who are working the case day to day. And the prosecutors in the case and the FBI agent on the case and the IRS agent particularly in the case, the ones who made it, have never been anywhere except for here. And if you want to hear the real story of how this incredibly large, complicated, difficult case, really one of the most complex cases of any kind, of any topic, um, ever done by the Department of Justice was run, then you need to see what the agents were doing to build the case. And I think I've captured that for the first time. Now, the IRS agent, a guy named Steve Berryman, do I have that right? Yeah. And, and uh, so this is not the FBI. How, how does the IRS become involved with this and be such an important part of the story? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting piece. So the, the investigation began um, in, a, in the middle of 2010, um, and uh, it had already been open for about a year when the IRS got involved. And this fellow, Steve Berryman, who is really um, an amazing character, um, is a is considered one of the best IRS agents in the entire country. Um, and he happens to be a huge soccer fan. His father was in the Air Force, and he spent much of his childhood in England um, playing soccer with kids in England and, um, and following Liverpool. And he's been a lifelong Liverpool supporter. And, uh, well, he had a good year. The final wasn't so good, yeah. but he moved out to Cal- – he was from California originally, and he finished his – he actually ended, went up to be a football place kicker and had a Division One scholarship uh, to kick field goals for a school in Illinois. Um, and though he was good, he wasn't quite good enough for the NFL. And when he figured that out, he finished his degree and got a job as an IRS agent. And um, But he, he was still a huge soccer fan. And almost by accident, um, he heard about something that gave him the suggestion there might be a case open. He did some digging, called some people around, 
and finally got an interview with the prosecutors here in in Brooklyn, essentially begging them for a chance to get on the case. And he came to them and said, look, I figured it all out in my head. He'd written an eight-page memo to convince the, the prosecutors that they needed him on the case. And they went for it. And there's, there's zero question if you ask anyone involved in the case, including defense attorneys, there's no way he, this case ever gets made, ever gets to indictment without Steve Berryman. It's interesting because without his passion for the sport, he might not have ever been connected to the case, right? Yeah, that's right. No one was, no one was knocking on his door begging him to join the case. This is a guy who, who when he heard about it, went after it like a, like a, you know, like a pit bull and wasn't going to let go of that case. And he made every effort he could and really worked it hard to get in and wouldn't let go. And many times throughout the case when things seemed to, sla- to slack off or drag, it was Berryman who was out there rattling the cages, making things happen. And to this day, the case is still open and he's still working hard to make it, to make more things happen. All right. So, Ken, the, uh, the World Cup in Russia, our current World Cup here in 2018, uh, you introduce and you're talking about some of these protagonists that are maybe have been unheard of prior to uh, your book. Uh, you introduce a, uh, the role of a former British spy as it pertains to uh, the Russia World Cup. Uh, can you uh, elaborate on that one? Sure. Um, so um, the former British spy is a guy by the name of Christopher Steele, who um, at the time he uh, got involved in this wasn't very famous, but of course has become incredibly famous now. Um, Steele is known as the guy who wrote the dossier um, containing numerous allegations about Donald Trump and Russia's um, alleged attempts to um, to interfere in American elections. Well, long before he ever wrote that, Steele was um, doing some work for the British, the English bid for the 2018 World Cup. So although Russia has it, England was competing for the bid at the time. And um, Steele was hired by the bid and the corporate sponsors behind it to do some field work to do some research on their opposition. In that case, the biggest, there was other countries bidding for it. Spain and Portugal had a bid. Belgium, Belgium and Holland had a bid. But the big clear competition was Russia. Steele was hired to do research on that. And what he found pretty quickly was that Russia was, was, was willing to and, in fact, doing anything it could to get the bid, including lots of what he felt to be underhanded stuff. And so he reported that information to his, to his client, the, Brit- the English bid and told them, but he also recently, or not long before that, had been in touch with an FBI agent about an unrelated Russia topic, about a, for a, related to an investigation they were doing having to do with some illegal sports betting and a Russian um, organized crime figure. And since he had that contact, and that was his best FBI contact, um, and particularly one with interest in Russia, he reached out to the FBI agent, asked him to come back to London, and said that he had information for him about this thing called FIFA. The agent, uh, Really, never even thought of FIFA. I'm not sure he even knew what it was. This was a guy who was a, you know, an American dude from from New York, from Brooklyn, and followed the New York Giants and the, and the New York Yankees, and had no interest in soccer. But he <laughs> he knew a good thing when he smelled it, and so he came back to the states, found a prosecutor in Brooklyn, very smart young man who's a Tottenham fan, and uh, <laughs> and got him convinced to open the case. So did uh, along the way, did he decipher that Vladimir Putin had? Uh, any involvement in this, uh, as maybe he put it, the unscrupulous activity to obtain the 2018 World Cup? Yeah, what he'd heard um, from his sources was that Putin, who, by the way, is not a soccer fan, despite the fact that he's going to be bathing himself in glory over the next month during the World Cup, he's famously a hockey fan. And people who have followed Russian news will know that once a year he he organizes a hockey game and um, goes out there and plays against Russia's best hockey players and miraculously scores eight or 10 goals in 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 a game. It's 
kind of a farce. He puts on the pads and just look how great he is. He scored goals against, you know, um, Russian all-stars. Anyway, hockey guy, not a soccer guy. But Chris Steele's sources started telling him that suddenly Putin was very interested in soccer, very interested in this bid, and would do anything personally to make sure that it, that it came through. And what he seemed to do was to enlist different assets he has to make it happen. He brought in some of his powerful oligarchs, notably um, Roman Abramovich, who is known as the owner of Chelsea, um, and a very, very wealthy guy with extremely tight personal ties to Putin. And he also brought in um, some of his people who were connected to Gazprom, which is a big sponsor of European soccer and also a huge, huge oil company to work on oil deals with some of the other uh, countries that had votes a fascinating account of the United States DOJ and their pursuit for justice in the global game, thanks to Ken Bensinger, the author of Red Card. And one final World Cup note involving South Korea's coach Shin Tae Yong, who says he deliberately made his team wear different numbered shirts in recent friendlies against Bolivia and Senegal to confuse his World Cup opponents, starting with Sweden on Monday. This quote from the coach, it's very difficult for Westerners to distinguish between Asians. That's why we did it. Sweden defeated Korea Republic one to nothing on Monday. And that'll do it for this episode of Soccer City, heard on WNYE 91.5 FM, iTunes, and the TuneIn app. I'm Glenn Crooks. Enjoy the World Cup, everybody.